1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, we're bringing you a Listener Mail episode. We've got Carney the Robot out here with us today, uh, who seems—something weird is going on with Carney. Have you figured out what this is, Robert? Yeah, I just finished uh, uh, running the the diagnosis
0: software on our good mailbot here. and It turns out he is suffering from uh, symptoms of multiple Highlander personality disorder.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, he
0: was apparently infected by that recent Highlander 2, the sciencing episode that we did uh-huh. And so he keeps uh, altering his uh, ego uh, and his uh, character personification from uh, being uh, uh, Ramirez to being Connor to being the Kurgan to being uh, cycling accents, yeah, like crazy. Yeah, he was in Michael Ironside mode just a few minutes ago. It was really running amok. Um, he he settled down a little bit. He's back in Connor mode right now.
1: Do you know what he was talking about a few minutes ago when he just kept saying it's pronounced "hoovian"? Oh, hoovian.
0: Well, he was echoing the sentiments of a number of different listeners who wrote in uh, to tell us that uh, fans of the TV series and overall sci-fi franchise Doctor Who are referred to as hoovians. No, that's incorrect. They're referred to as hooviacs. I don't know, Joe. I don't know if the, the data really supports this. No, I'll be proved correct as always. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, uh, anyway, despite his programming issues right now, uh, Carney does have quite a number of listener mails for us uh, related to different episodes that we've, uh, we've put out over the past month. Now, as always, we don't have time to respond to every bit of listener mail or uh, social media interaction that comes in, and we don't have time in this episode to read all of the great listener mails that have come in over the past month or so. But we're going to try and touch some uh, some of the high points and respond to some of the more conversational bits that have come in.
1: Yeah, but just as we always say, if if we didn't have time to respond to you and you're not featured on the episode, don't worry. It's not because we didn't like your email. We just don't have have we don't have all the time in the world here. Be it known that we do appreciate all the correspondence we get. Uh, So thank you so much, and please keep it coming. But I think we should go to our first email, Robert. All right. Uh, The first
0: couple of listener mails we're going to read here have to deal with our Bugs Under the Skin episode. Uh, So this one is from Dominique, who writes in and says, Hey, guys, I was listening to the Bugs Under the Skin episode and thought an experience I had would be worth sharing. One night a few months ago, I was walking around our backyard with a headlamp on. And as sometimes happens with lights at night, it attracted a few different insects that proceeded to fly around my head. It was a little annoying, but no big deal, until one of them flew directly into my ear. It didn't didn't hurt or anything, but it was surprisingly loud, like someone aggressively rubbing newspaper together right by my ear. And by the feel of it, I thought it was a small moth or something, maybe a half or inch uh, long or so. I went inside and had my wife peek in there, with an otoscope uh, we have for our kids, and to my surprise, even as I was feeling and hearing this thing, she said she couldn't see anything at all. Annoyed and somewhat in disbelief, I proceeded to flush flush the ear out with some warm water and was surprised when outwashed a tiny little white fly, maybe two millimeters in length. Apparently, a really tiny set of wings beating directly on your eardrum can both feel and sound
1: deceptively large." I believe it, though this did not answer my biggest question, which is, what were you doing with the headlamp out in the backyard, Dominique? Were you burying a body? What's happening here? (laughs) There are a lot of reasons to go into your backyard with a headlamp. Mining for lead
0: sulfide, maybe? Searching for the the source of the Nile. I mean, there are a number of reasons (laughs) to go back there. Anyway, he says, thanks for the podcast, guys. I love every minute of it. And, oh, by the way, he is – he is from Florida, which, okay. of course, can be quite buggy, so that also explains it.
1: Now, Robert, you mentioned in that episode that you once, when you were a kid, had a bug fly into your ear and that it was very loud. So is, does this match your experience? Absolutely, The, the yeah.
0: newspaper? Absolutely, yeah. As he described it, it, it brought back sort of the sense
1: memory of that, uh, that time. All right, we got another one about the bugs under the skin episode. This one is from our listener, Ming. Ming says... Hey, Robert and Joe, just listened to your episode on bugs under the skin, and I loved it. Really gross and fascinating at the same time. The copious mentions of centipedes in orifices and bugs in ears reminded me of the Duanwu festival, so I thought I'd write in about it. I grew up in central China, and every Duanwu Festival, my grandfather would crush up realgar, which is a, a arsenic sulfide mineral. I actually had to look it up; I didn't know what that was. But uh, so he would crush up realgar to make Xiong I uh, Hope I said that right. It's a type of yellow wine people drink to ward away evil, as well as poisonous creatures. As a child at the time, I was only allowed a tiny bit of the wine to drink, but my grandfather would pour drops of it inside both my ears. When I would ask why, he would explain that it was to keep centipedes from crawling into my ears because realgar was a powerful deterrent to the creepy crawlies. This featured heavily in mythology, too, where centipede monsters or snake monsters, two of the five poisons in Chinese myth, would be undone by realgar. Huh. It was only with research just now brought on by the episode that I found out that Rialgar is an arsenic sulfide mineral. I guess what keeps people away keeps bugs away too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, as always, for the show, my favorite in the Stuff Network, Ming. Well, thank you so much, Ming. We're glad you like it.
0: Yes, indeed. I always love to hear from uh, listeners who have spent time in China.
1: I want to know a little more about this, though. What did that feel like in the ear, the the arsenic sulfide? Does that burn? What does that do? And is it indeed uh, preferable
0: to an actual centipede in the ear? I suspect that it probably is. That's probably that's probably one probably. of the practice emerged. Somebody got a centipede in the ear. And then they said, "Well, this this kind of sucks, but it's still far better than worrying about centipedes in the ear."
1: Okay, this next email concerns both dangerous foods and idiophones. So this is from our listener Joe. She lives in Malaysia, and Joe writes, "I discovered your podcast and have been slowly working my way through all of the episodes. I happened across the episodes on dangerous foods and thought it would be fun to tell you about one that I love to eat. I don't think you've mentioned this yet, but I may be mistaken." Sauropus androgynous or androgynus, I guess. Um, here, it's known as kengkuk manis or manikai. I particularly love when it's stir-fried with eggs. It's a great source of vitamins and proteins, and she attaches a picture. Uh, however, when several Taiwanese people juiced and drank it, they ended up with lung failure and then death. And she attaches an article. Uh, but she explains the cause of death has been tentatively linked to the high amounts of alkaloids, uh, papaverine, but the exact mechanism is not yet known. It's proposed that cooking inactivates the deadly poison inside, rendering it something that can be o- that can only be consumed cooked or in small amounts if raw. Uh, similar to some other things we looked at in these Dangerous Foods episodes, such as just common beans, kidney beans. You know, you should not eat them raw.
0: Yeah, our various culinary practices um, often are ways to make that which would kill us uh, actually something we can eat, be either by transforming it chemically through the process of cooking Mm -hmm. or just, uh, you know, regulating the amount of poison that we're
1: taking in. (laughs) Right. Uh, So Joe continues, I usually take all my foreign friends to try it once, and now I have to add a warning to never, ever consume it raw or juiced. Digressing, I was also listening to the episode on idiophones, and I laughed out loud when you use kiki as an example of something to mean sharp or angular. There is a word in – oh, and I actually don't know how to pronounce – this language, H-O-K-K-I-E-N. Is that Hokkien, maybe? Or maybe Hokkien? Uh, Anyway, Joe continues, in that language, kiki, pronounced with a hard stop after each syllable, so I guess that'd be kiki or something, Uh, commonly used to indicate that an edge is jagged or uneven. So if I were to describe someone's haircut as kiki, that would mean that their hair was uneven. I also tested out the three Japanese words from the episode on my friends, and they guessed correctly each time. I was quite surprised as none of them knew Japanese. Anyway, really enjoy your podcast and have recommended it to so many people. Keep up the good work. Joe from Malaysia. Well, thank you, Joe. All right, I'm looking over here at
0: uh, at Carney, and Carney has switched personas, and now he is uh, drinking scotch and being fitted for a custom suit. Oh no! Yeah, so I think he's in full uh, Connery Ramirez mode. Uh, but but it bides us a little time. Uh, we're going to start covering some of the listener mail that we received concerning lists. Ah, okay. This one comes to us from Rachel. Hi, Joe and Robert. A list of hosts. <laughs> <laughs> it came to mind that we sometimes create terms or labels for things, taxonomically for instance, uh, which represents a list of traits describing these unique things. Uh, The more obvious ones are labels, like the word skateboard, which is a board with skate wheels. Mm -hmm. Less obvious would be a term like bellus perennis, the common daisy, which is a label for a list of traits that must be present in order to qualify for this label. Therefore, by giving something that label, one would be indicating, at least to a botanist, that a certain list of things are true of that object. I've always loved compound words for their descriptive but sometimes easily misunderstood natures. Take, for instance, the word chainsaw, meaning a saw using a chain for cutting. Basically, one could be forgiven for thinking this referred to a saw intended for the use in the cutting of chains. Don't even get me started on chainsaw carving contest. Wow, Rachel. (laughs) Uh,
1: Chainsaw is the best uh, thing to illustrate any concept. Next item on lists came from our listener Clayton. Clayton says, Robert and Joe, I've been listening to the show for four years now and let's make a list and the let's make a list episode might be your best yet. I thoroughly enjoyed this one and was delighted to become aware of all the various reasons and types of lists humans have made throughout history. List making is a huge tenant of my life and something that my wife and I love doing together. The feeling of accomplishment when striking through an item on a to-do list is so satisfying that often if we have a running list of things like household repairs and a repair happens that is not on our list, my wife will write it down after the list is complete, then just cross it off the list. Thank you guys for the show. P.S. Invention is also fantastic. Love the theme song and the podcast album artwork uh, from Clayton.
0: Yeah, people love uh, love the theme song for Invention. We keep yeah. getting inquiries about it uh, and I keep having to reply and tell everybody uh, what it is and where you can find it.
1: Only the finest uh, stock music for our listeners' ears.
0: But no, it's 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 from a stock music database, but you can also purchase it yeah. uh, online if you love it that much. So, and, you, and you know who the artist is and stuff, I think, right? Yeah, you know what? I, I don't have it on hand at the moment, but what I will do is after we, we leave this recording session, I will add it to the Invention page. If you go to inventionpod.com, Go to the About section, mm-hmm. and at the bottom, under the stuff about about, uh, about about who's hosting the show, et cetera, and our, our beautiful picture, uh, we will <laughs> put. Uh, uh, we'll put a little information there about who the artist is and where you can buy the uh, the the track for yourself because it's good stuff. We 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 looked at a lot of music that was available to us before we decided on this particular track.
1: And hey, if you're not subscribed to Invention yet, go subscribe right now. Check it out. If you like this show, you'll probably like that one. But anyway, I wanted to read this message from Clayton because I sometimes also do this thing with the with the to do list. I think it's a great idea. When you make a to do list, don't only include what you've got ahead of you. Also, include some things you've already recently gotten done and then cross them off. Somehow, to me, this process is really pleasing. It's highly motivating. It's like you get a breath of wind behind you. You know, the, the mountaintop bear goddess just pours strength into your mind and your muscles. It's good.
0: Uh, his his uh, email made me think, what if you took up this task, though, to keep an ongoing list of items that you have never included on a list before? <laughs> And you have to maintain this and keep it current. Uh-huh. So you're constantly putting new things on and taking old things off. Remember, you have to take them off as soon as they've been li- as soon as they've been listed on a list somewhere. Try it for yourself. Write in. Let us know how it goes. The, the Impossible List. Okay. All right. Here's another one about lists. This one comes to us from Tony. Hello, gentlemen. As soon as I saw there was an episode on lists, I knew it would be a winner. Several members of my family have actually referred to me as Mr. List. Hmm. Over the years, I've made dozens of lists on a variety of topics, from my 50 favorite R.E.M. songs to the most heartbreaking losses in Chicago Bears history that I have seen. As an avid movie fan, I have always loved the Academy Awards and found my viewing of the ceremony was more enjoyable when I had seen all the Best Picture nominees beforehand. This triggered an idea that would become my greatest undertaking yet, watching all of the movies that had ever been nominated for Best Picture. Whoa. As of this writing, I have seen 388 of 554 for a list of list completion of 70%, which I think is pretty impressive. That's a lot of movies, Tony. (laughs) Alas, it was only after I was well into this project that I discovered there is no known surviving copy of The Patriot, one of the nominees from 1928. This, of course, means that no matter what effort I give, I'll never be able to truly complete the list. I always hope one day I'll be mindlessly clicking around the internet and run into a quick news blurb that someone found a copy of The Patriot tucked away in a weathered chest in an old producer's attic or something like that. While the majority of readers would skim right over that news, for me, it would be like locating the Holy Grail. Thanks for your continued offering, which, offerings which enlighten and entertain us all. Tony. In
1: Chicago, of course, thus the Bears. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tony. Uh, yeah, it sounds like unless somebody finds a copy of the Patriot, your life is a lie. <laughs> um,
0: I, I know. I, I can understand what he means ab- about like the, the desire to you, you find something that you are into, mm-hmm. and then you set the goal of completing it. Yeah. Um, I, I fall into this trap sometimes. Say if I discover a new author that I really dig or a filmmaker. Um, An artist, even. uh, You want to be a
1: completionist. Yeah, Yeah.
0: or I've I've also done this with, um, like, if I discover, like, a new, uh, say, in the past, if I discovered, like, a new professional wrestler, like, some new (laughs) Japanese professional wrestler that I had never heard of before. And then I'm like, well, I've got to see all their matches now. Uh, and then, you, of course, you always run into the same problem. Like e- either it's an actual incompleteness situation where okay, the, this film is not available, or this book is is, com- is as uh, is, hasn't been published in in ages, and now it's too expensive to buy a used copy of, or you just run into the the fact that if you become a completist on something, like sometimes you're that means consuming stuff that's maybe not the uh, the primo material, you know? Right? Like sometimes it's best just to stick to the the top five. Um, uh, you know, hits from this particular artist, rather than dive into their full discography. But still, seventy percent completion rate on um, on nominees—that's pretty good.
1: Well, I, I no, I also see the appeal of just going down the list, even when there are other things you could be doing, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like I was thinking about when we were getting really into the nineteen eighty nine Underwater Peril movies. Yeah, and it's like even though you know that like Lords of the Deep is is not going to be good maybe not even good bad you're just uh, you've just got to go down there because you've already started yeah and and I did that luckily there
0: was a mystery science theater 3000 episode of lords of the deep that yeah. came out this year or the tail end of last year but i also tried to watch i forget the name of it, it was like a german uh, 1989 underwater film not one of the like the top here either. Uh it was it was <laughs> well, just, of course not. it was really bad. It was it was unwatchable. I had nothing of I, I that's why I have nothing to even say about it other than it was just complete boredom. But you got to cross it off. That's true. I did get to cross it off. Okay, Carney's going to, gone into
1: Kurgan mode. Oh, no. I think he has uh, a correction. We have wrath coming our way. <laughs> well, okay, so this is from Duncan. Uh, so Duncan begins by saying, hi, guys, a couple minor corrections if you will forgive my OCD. I think this might be a little more of a clarification, but w- we'll take it.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're in favor of clarity.
1: Yeah, so uh, Duncan says about gravitational physics in, in our thought experiment episode. You know, we talked about the idea of um, of uh, the, the Aristotelian view of gravity versus the Galilean view of gravity and uh, so what Duncan says is Most people get a couple of simple semantic distinctions wrong when talking about the speed of falling bodies. In the podcast about thought experiments, you mentioned that if you drop a heavy object and a light object off a tall building, they will hit the ground at the same time. This is false. The correct phrasing is the rate of acceleration caused by gravity is the same for all objects regardless of density. You can also say objects in a vacuum fall at the same speed regardless of density. The first distinction is using the words heavy and light as opposed to talking about density. An inflated balloon weighs more than a plastic BB pellet, but the BB pellet will hit the ground first. The denser object will fall faster. The other important distinction is about acceleration versus speed. Objects accelerate at the same speed, but air resistance builds proportional to their speed, so all objects have a different terminal velocity based on their density and also their aerodynamic profile. If you drop two objects with different densities off a building and it is high enough, for either one of them to reach its terminal velocity, that object will stop accelerating. The other will continue for a bit longer and therefore fall faster, hitting the ground first. This can be easily demonstrated with a piece of cotton wool and a marble from a height of only a meter or so. And then Duncan also goes on with some other uh, comments about our our previous clarifications on uses of the word billion, like U.S. usage versus non-U.S. English usage. But from what I can tell, yeah, I do want to say that Duncan's comments here about the physics of falling bodies, that seems absolutely correct. I think we were speaking in a little bit of shorthand in the episode, uh, but but that is all true. All right, Carney
0: has calmed down a bit, and uh, now he has uh, he has handed me another listener mail, and this one has to do at least uh, partially with blobsters. Ah, okay. So this one comes to us from Weldon. Weldon writes, uh, love your podcast. Catching uh, up, I was listening to the second Blobster episode when you were pointing out that some creationists try to force the timeline to fit what they feel the Earth creation timeline is. I'm a person who is convinced that we are far too complex and amazing, even some politicians, to be accidental. (laughs) So I am a creationist. But I believe it is only people's misguided interpretation of multiple layers of language differences that cause so much confusion. The earth is four plus billion years old, as far as we can tell. The universe is somewhere in the neighborhood of 13 plus billion years old. How does that not allow for God to work uh, whatever way he chooses? When we try to cubbyhole what was accomplished, we limit his ability uh, to only what we understand. And we aren't always that bright. Simple facts point to a longer time involved, like a tiny bacterial found miles deep in the earth's crust, Russian drilling expedition, or starlight itself, hitting our eyes at night from who knows how many light years away. So keep up the good work on a great show and try to remember not everyone who believes in creation thinks it all happened in a few days. Thanks,
1: Weldon. Well, I think we have uh, intentionally pointed out that that distinction before, that not all people who, who believe in a creator of some form, whatever religion they are, believe in, say, like a young earth creationist model. In fact, I think we try to be fairly careful about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, my take has always been that if we're dealing with a creator-God scenario, and I like to, you know, look at different scenarios for this sort of thing, uh, you know, if, if that's the scenario we're playing with, we shouldn't expect that God to work their craft in a way that fits into human lifetimes and human crafting experience. It's like if if I was um, a cobbler, you know, uh, and uh, then I end up thinking of, of God as a shoemaker. Mm-hmm. Like that, that can be insightful, that can put it in terms that I can understand, but then I shouldn't expect, um, you know, everything about the cosmos and the history of the cosmos to then therefore be, you know, completely relatable to say the timeline of making a pair of shoes or fixing a pair of shoes, uh, etc. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, 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 I think that, yes, someone can certainly believe in a creator and a divine creator and still believe in evolution and uh, everything that
1: that consensus science tells us about our world and our universe. Well, obviously those beliefs can coexist because they do in millions and millions of people. Yeah. One thing I do want to take issue with in what you say, Weldon, is though I I don't – I mean I I wouldn't try to tell you not to believe in a creator or anything like that. But you say – you, you're convinced in the fact that there's a creator because we're far too complex and amazing to be accidental. The unstated assumption underneath this is that things can only be complex and amazing if they were intended by something. I, I don't know if that's true. I think things can be complex and amazing for all kinds of reasons.
0: Well, then, then if you if you look at, especially if you look at, say, Christian um, theology, right, God is complex and amazing, Right. And yet, uh, that entity was not created by something else. So, I mean, I mean, I guess you know, you're giving privileged <laughs> status to the creator or deity in, in this uh, scenario, as one tends to do. But, uh, but still, like it, e- even like the basic Christian theology doesn't say that that. Um, uh, that it is impossible for something complex to come into being without the aid of a creator, I guess. I mean, you can sort of take that in any number of directions and, and argue it uh,
1: up up a tree, but uh, at any rate. Well, getting back to the principle about uh, accepting science and also having some, you know, for various forms of theology, I mean, most of the scientists in history have had some kind of theology, like a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of, say, these 19th century scientists who were involved in discovering evolution would have thought that probably there was some kind of deistic creator, you know, mm-hmm. that there was some force behind the universe, but then they came to believe that, well, maybe that God did not in fact set out animal forms or things like that. Those arose out of natural physical processes.
0: Yeah, I mean, you will find a lot of atheist scientists, but you'll also find a lot of scientists too, uh, to varying degrees uh, follow different uh, religious worldviews. And I, and I think they're... Is something highly advantageous in being able to to have more than one worldview to sort of shuffle them around uh, uh, depending on you know what you're you're dealing with in your life you know you kind of have different uh, it's like playing a video game where you have different power ups right mm-hmm. you have different armors different swords right and uh, you you put on different power ups depending on what your character's doing is your character crafting something well you're going to change your build out you know is your craft character battling orcs well you're going to change your build out a little and I feel I feel like I do that a little bit with with worldview. Like, what are you doing? What, what are you thinking about? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the the best way to approach uh, you know the current um, challenges
1: of of the world or of the mind? Well, yes, and that shuffling can also, I think, take place at. Uh... I don't know how you say it, just different levels. I mean, for example, you don't have to be at a level where you ever literally believe any stories in the Bible like literally happened in order to say read the book with pleasure and understand what it means or to say uh, read other religious poetry or hear religious music that makes reference to it and try to identify with the author and like put yourself in that mindset.
0: Yeah. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to jump back into more Listener Mail, and eventually we're going to get to some Highlander 2-specific email.
1: Now, Carney seems very excited. Oh, yes.
0: All right, we're back. So, uh, yes, Carney's very excited because now we're going to go ahead and and read a little Highlander 2-Listener Mail. All right. All right, this first one comes to us from Dan. Dan writes in, I'm writing in response to your episode on Highlander 2, The Quickening. I'm so glad you finally made good on your promise slash threat to do this episode, as it was well worth the wait. We're glad you're glad. While I've never seen any of the Highlander movies, I've, I'd always seemed to be a part of the pop culture and media landscape during my teen years in the late 90s. And indeed, well, it was. It was always on either the movies, especially mm-hmm. the you know the first the first one especially seemed to get was on TV constantly.
1: Was it on USA all the time? Probably.
0: I know I was on USA all the time, so it's probably <laughs> where I watched that or TBS, TNT. Those were my hangouts. Uh-huh. Uh So anyway, he continues. Um, growing up, I watched a lot of USA oh, and okay. the Highlander <laughs> TV series. Both live action and animated uh, always seemed to be on no matter what day or time it was. Even today, I can still sing, hum, slash hum the opening of Princes of the Universe. That's just how ingrained it is in me. I guess you could call it uh, the let it go of the late 90s <laughs> cult cinema slash TV for me.
1: I think that's a song from Frozen. I know this from my friends who have little
0: kids. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, that's definitely from Frozen. And yeah, Princess of the Universe is kind of our, our Frozen. Even though for the, the, the TV show, the movies, they never use the full version, you know, because mm-hmm. it gets a little weird <laughs> later in the, in the song. It's still great, but uh, I think it can be surprising if you, you expect it to maintain that same uh, – um, Overtly, like, epic vibe that it has right at the start. Uh, anyway, he continues uh, keep up all the great work you do. Looking forward to a potential Science of Labyrinth or Dark Crystal episode. And then uh, he included uh, a link to Siskel and Ebert's review of Islander 2 The Quickening, uh, which he says Ebert called the worst movie of 1991 and Siskel called the worst title of 91. <laughs>
1: Is this one of the ones where they would – sometimes they'd come in and they'd be like, I'm so glad that when people – sometimes people would ask them, have you seen any really bad movies lately? And they'd Mm -hmm. have to think like, what was a really bad one I saw recently? But occasionally there'd be one so bad that they wouldn't have to think anymore. They'd just be like, here's my answer for the time being.
0: Yeah, it's got to be grounding in a way, especially if you're dealing with a lot of um – you know of, of of sort of higher end uh, indie pieces and artistic works to, to to just dig into something that is just uh you know objectively bad
1: <laughs> oh well, there's nothing i love more than when uh you know when i've been deep in some cerebral material to just back out of this and watch attack of the crab monsters again or go <laughs> to some other giant animal movie oh wait wait robert do you hear that
0: yeah wh- whoa what is that i Something kind of cutting in.
1: Cuddle Cat Cuttlefish to the second oil age. And his kingdom was full of darkness.
0: I don't dispute the Eros data, but if he's down here, we'd know. Not blood, but darkness.
1: The Earth's black riches. No. I could taste it on my lips. Today, I want to talk to you about the science of transgenesis. Transgenesis dot show. No, oh, I, I guess it's gone now. Maybe it wasn't anything.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I just heard like a high pitched, uh, like, like uh, glitchy noise. Oh,
1: Robert, you got a bit of blood in the oh. corner of your eye. Oh my goodness!
0: I, yeah, I'm, ble- I'm bleeding from around my- Let me get, get cleaned up here, and we can keep going. I'm good. I'm good.
1: All right, here's another one about Highlander from Chris. Chris says, I loved the Highlander episode. (laughs) My only experience with Highlander was having a favorite uncle growing up who loved them. (laughs) How do do you know that about your uncle? Like your uncle loves it so much he's talking to his nieces and nephews
0: about it? I think if somebody loves Highlander enough, you'll know. Like (laughs) it will be
1: undeniable. Uh, His uncle was Christophe Lambert, by the way. Uh, I only had fond memories until your episode kind of pointed out some of the things my adult brain understands is bonkers. The bit breaking down the actors slash characters slash accents made me do one of those slap-the-steering-wheel laughs. I had a suggestion also. With the Dune universe coming back soon in a movie form, I would love my favorite science show to dive into some of the wild sci-fi Frank Herbert gave us and maybe shed some light on inspiration or real-life echoes – some episode topics could include shields and engines, sandworms, and, of course, the spice. Hope you guys are well and love what you do as much as I love listening. Well, Chris, we've got a treat for you <laughs> because we beat you to it. That's right.
0: We did a couple of Dune episodes uh, maybe a couple of years ago. Have
1: we rerun those? We
0: have. We've rerun them uh, once. Chris. Uh, yes.
1: Go into our archive. <laughs> do a little search. And I'm sure you find a search bar somewhere. Look up Dune Parts 1 and 2. I think those are th- those are a couple of personal favorites of mine that we've yeah. done.
0: And I'd, I'd actually I'd actually love to come back and explore a little more about the Dune universe. Uh, I have a book uh, titled "The Philosophy of Dune" with a, with different essays about hmm. uh, you know ph- philosophical treatments of some of the ideas that uh, that Herbert uh, uh, used in the uh, in the novels. Uh, so I, I I think we could come back and do more Dune in the future. Certainly as we get closer to the release of the next. A dune film or mm-hmm. films
1: which uh which i'm very excited about you know one thing i can say about that upcoming dune movie i think they made a good choice casting paul not as an ultra likable young actor but as a kind of like maybe kind of a little jerk kind oh, yeah. of twerpy guy that that timothy chalamet guy like the jerk character he plays in ladybird i can see it that's paul oh, atreides see, see, i haven't
0: seen uh, Lady Bird yet so oh uh
1: ladybird is great okay
0: uh, they, they certainly nailed some of the other casting. I do like the idea of uh, of Stellan Skarsgård as uh, as Harkonnen. We'll see how that goes.
1: Yeah. Okay, looks like we got a great one up here from Amelia. Amelia writes in and says,
0: Hi, Robert and Joe. I'm so happy you finally did a Highlander-themed episode. While I never had the pleasure of seeing The Quickening, I was tickled to hear you mention among Highlander's various spin-off series the two animated films. Uh, now, I don't claim to be a Highlander connoisseur, as I've only seen the original 1986 film in one of these animated features, namely Highlander Quest for Vengeance. Uh, But although objectively terrible, Highlander Quest for Vengeance was my initial introduction to the series and remains my most supreme guilty pleasure views of all time. It's directed by uh, Yoshiaki Kawajiri, better recognized for his work on Ninja Scroll. Oh, yeah, I I love Ninja Scroll back in the day. I don't know it. Uh, Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust. I may have seen that. I can't. I did watch some sort of Vampire Hunter uh, anime back in the day. Mm -hmm. And The Animatrix. It's also written by David Abramowitz, who gave us Highlander the Series and Highlander the Raven. Is one of those the cop show? The Raven is the cop show. We may have another listener mail about this, but I think she was technically a thief, and she, like, works with a cop. It's still still a cop show. Um, But anyway, she continues. I won't spoil too much in case other listeners check it out, but we'll say— this addition to the Highlander series is absolutely worthwhile for the Celtic and Roman history buffs like myself. Its epic scope definitely plunges into the ridiculous, and like many of Kawajiri's films, the animation alone makes it worth a watch. It functions well as a standalone film, so even if you haven't seen other Highlander-related material, it's very accessible. I recommend it to anyone who's a fan of the original. Well, no, I, I want to see that too, because I'm, you know, I, I definitely have nostalgia for for the Highlander series. And uh, I have a little bit of, I think I'm almost to the point in my life where I can be nostalgic about watching some of these anime films in college.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, you know what? I think I didn't realize this until just now. I think this is not the first time Amelia has gotten in touch with us about Highlander. Oh yeah? <laughs> I think she might be a listener who has written to us multiple times whenever we mentioned Highlander on the show. So we, we could be dealing with a with a hardcore super fan here.
0: We've been cultivating um a um, a subset of our listeners who are hardcore Highlander fans.
1: Okay, this next one is response to Highland is a response to Highlander 2, and this comes from our listener, Rami. Rami says. Hi, guys. I just finished listening to your episode, Highlander 2, The Sciencing, and wanted to provide some additional information on decapitation in the natural world. Yes, this is the right kind of listener mail. Yes, Rami. So, Rami says, there is a type of hornet called the Asian giant hornet, Vespa mandarinia, which preys on honeybee larvae. The hornets, which can grow up to two inches in length, would descend on a hive of honeybees in groups and start decapitating them with their huge mandible to get access to the larvae. A single hornet can decapitate as many as 20 bees a minute. A small group of hornets can eliminate an entire colony of 30,000 or more bees. The honeybee stingers are not strong enough to pierce the hornet's thick armor, but they have, however, evolved another defense strategy against the hornets, once a hornet is spotted in the hive, the honeybees form a tight ball around it and start vibrating furiously. This increases the hornet's body temperature, essentially cooking it to death. You can watch these awesome battles taking place by searching giant hornet versus honeybees on Google or YouTube. The giant hornet is an invasive species to Southern Europe, thought to be brought here by cargo ships, and it has decimated honeybee populations in the region. But it's nice to see the honeybees starting to evolve defensive to a completely foreign predator evolution at work right in front of your eyes keep up the great work i listen to your podcast every morning on my way to work and it certainly makes my one hour commute uh, an enjoyable one i particularly enjoy episodes about the natural world space or history but you guys never disappoint thanks for your time rami well thank you rami Th- this is great i don't know how i couldn't i never came across this yeah this is a this is
0: a fascinating organism all right, we have one more, just one more uh, listener mail up that is directly related to Highlander 2. Okay. Uh, this one comes to us from Fran. Thank you, gentlemen, for your varied and always interesting podcast. I'm a newbie with podcasts, but I've probably already listened to around 100 of yours. Inventions, stuff to blow your mind, and stuff you should know. I also love the ladies of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Anyway, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Highlander fan. Yes. But far more the TV show than the movies. <laughs> She's a Highlander Fran. Fran? Oh, fan, Fran, gotcha. Ah, any, <laughs> anyway, she continues. Uh, by the way, I agree with you that Highlander 2 The Quickening is one of the truly bad movies of all time. I'd like to hear what MST3K could do with it. Oh, that'd be great. But I own the videotapes of all six seasons of the TV show, as well as the one season of The Raven, I mostly love the show because they found an excuse for Adrian Paul to take off his shirt in almost every episode. (laughs) I admit it, I can be shallow. That man has a totally ripped body and is a martial artist. His fights were things of beauty. The Raven, and here here we get a a further breakdown on what The Raven was really like. Okay. The Raven is about an immortal who also is a quite accomplished thief. Mm. Amanda, the thief, has known Duncan, uh, Duncan McCloud, Adrian Paul's character from the TV show, for several hundred years, and she's beautiful and very smart-ass. There were a couple of episodes of Highlander that had Roger Daltrey. What? Yeah, of The Who. I remember these now uh, as the guest immortal, and they were mostly comedy, and everyone seemed to be having a good time. Yeah, I remember seeing Roger Daltrey on there now
1: I've got to look this up I can't yeah. wait to see Roger Dalton did they ever have Robert plant as a yeah. immortal
0: no no they they lost their heads long ago sadly but uh, but Daltry was still still kicking um, Oh, she also adds a little bit about uh, uh, invention. She says, uh, You asked in Invention a Toilets Part 2 about any science fiction toilets, and the only one I can remember is from the original four hour long 2001. I don't
1: think it's four hours. <laughs> it's not, hours. not quite it's four hard. hours.
0: I think she's uh, she's having a little fun there. Uh, I was 16 when it was released. I saw that twice, and then a three hour long version, both in Cinerama. In the long version, Dr. Floyd is in the Pan Am shuttle heading to the space station. There is a shot of him reading the instructions for. For the zero gravity toilet thank you again for the entertainment and education you've given me
1: well fran uh if you want to know more about the zero gravity toilet i think we talk about it a bit in our episode on 2001 a space odyssey from earlier last year
0: yeah we did we did talk about it just a little bit uh yeah that was the uh, one of the uh one of the, the earlier movie uh, episodes that we did uh that scene is great that's kubrick the comedian
1: at work, Well, especially because it's immediately preceded by him drinking out of a carton of corn with a straw, mm-hmm. and then it just cuts to him, like, staring at the toilet instructions. <laughs> you you got to kind of put things together in your mind. Okay, we got one here from Adam that uh, does involve Highlander 2, but it's also about our ninth planet episode. So, Adam says, Hi, Robert and Joe. I'm writing in to help answer some questions posed about various sci-fi franchises in the past few episodes. The first is about the planet Mondas, the original Homeworld of Doctor Who's Cybermen. Ah, this must be an email from a Huvionian. it's, it's a Huvian. Huvian. No, I don't think that's right. Huvionian. Okay. Uh, so Adam says Mondus is indeed both a parallel planet to Earth as well as the ninth planet in our solar system. However, the serial in which it first appeared was named the tenth planet because it was released in 1966, forty years before Pluto was reclassified to a dwarf planet. And I think that would also be a about 40 years after Pluto was discovered, right? Oh, perfect. Yeah. So Adam continues, the geography of Mondas is very similar to Earth, with the main and only apparent difference being that the continents are upside down, Mondus drifted into deep space long before humanity existed, possibly because of the moon's orbit around Earth. Luckily, there's no problem that television sci-fi from the 1960s can't solve because the Cybermen were able to pilot their planet back to Earth where it was eventually destroyed, which is much less of a problem in the show where the main component is time travel. Also, the term used to describe Doctor Who fans is Whovian, in case that comes up again. See? No, I See? yeah, I can't believe he could be this wrong. I think you I think you have to trust
0: Adam here. He seems to know what he's talking about.
1: I don't know how Adam could be a Doctor Who fan without knowing that they're called Whovedons. But anyway, the other question I wanted to answer was from the episode about the silence science of Highlander 2. The question asked was whether or not the Alien franchise had ever had a face burster concerning the Sudactian flies. Because remember, the Sudactian or the Highlander fly we talked about, it decapitates the ant, the larva grows within the ant's head, and then mm-hmm. it pops out of the ant's face. So oh, we yes. were saying, was there ever – Oh, was there ever a harm? Movie right. where something popped out of someone's face specifically was there ever an alien in the alien franchise that instead of bursting out of the chest like uh-huh. coming out of John Hurt's chest it pops out of somebody's face I
0: still maintain no I don't remember ever seeing that I, I think
1: I would know Well, Adam says, the answer is both yes and no. Mm. While the official franchise has not had a chestburster burst burst out of somebody's face, instead, the 1980 unauthorized sequel, Alien 2, colon, On Earth, which I had no idea this even existed. Is this a novelization? I don't know. I gotta look this up. Uh, Oh, maybe it's a fan film. Alien 2, On Earth, uh, did have a scene like this. Whether this was for copyright reasons or for pure gross out, I do not know. I have included a link to the trailer for for the film that includes a very similar scene
0: well certainly in the wake of alien you see a lot of needless scenes where creatures bust out of people um uh, you know specifically uh humanoids from the deep comes to mind as a film that among its various uh problems one is that they were like we got to end it in a chest bursting scene Uh work it into the plot and they're like yes corman we will
1: I'm only half listening to you because I'm watching this trailer now, (laughs) and uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I just got to a face-bursting scene. This looks to me... Like a uh, alien, okay. It's called Alien Two on Earth, nineteen eighty. It looks like a, a work of um, sort of cinema Italianissimo going oh, on here. Okay. Uh, little, sort of like all
0: the Italian Jaws sequels and yeah, whatnot. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, I, I'm getting that vibe. Okay.
0: Well, I'm well. The time frame is right. Uh, yeah, I'm on board. I'll watch it. Sure. If it was made in the eighties by Italians and it has blood in it, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll probably do it.
1: <laughs> is that blood orange? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, maybe we should uh, take another break there, and then come back and uh, and do a few more, and then wrap up.
0: All right, we're back. Uh, I, I want to make a take a quick moment here to talk a little bit about another uh, sword wielding um, warrior, and that being uh, the legendary Irish hero uh, Cúhullan or Cuchullin, Cú or Cuchellan. We had a lot of Irish listeners write in about this and uh, uh, correct us on the pronunciation or give their two cents on the pronunciation. Um, So, uh, first of all, I want to mention that I I reached out to my friend Linus uh, online, who is not a listener to the show uh, because he sucks, uh, but he uh, (laughs) but he is Irish, and so he I asked him, "Hey, what's your? How would you say this?" And he said he told me that it would be uh, uh, Cuchullin. Uh, Granted, this wasn't much help as it occurred after we recorded the episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also heard from uh, listener Ben in the discussion module. That's our Facebook uh, discussion group, Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. And he said, uh, uh, quote, there are three dialects in Irish, uh, Donegal, uh, Connemara, and Munster, and they all vary. I've heard the second C pronounced as a hard C and your pronunciation as well. Irish people always disagree on pronunciation depending on where they're from. You guys did a great job, and I love the episode. Uh, and then it was also pointed out that uh, the Pogues have a song on their 1985 album, Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash, mm-hmm. which I listened to a lot um, years back. Uh, it just wasn't in my, uh, my head to go back and, uh, you know, it, it, I didn't remember uh, that there was a Pogue song that uh, mentioned him. But in that song, you hear Shane McGowan saying more like, Kukellen, hmm. Kuchelan, Kuchelan, Kuchelan. Uh, So if we were to go with Shane McGowan, um, then, yeah, we were incorrect in our episode for sure.
1: Well, it sounds like they can't even make up their own minds.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, my interpretation is that we were probably wrong. But Uh. if we really wanted to, like, dig our heels in and say, no, we know what we're talking about with Irish pronunciation. Okay. Foolishly. Then we would be able to perhaps back up our case by pointing to a particular dialect. But – I'm, I'm happy to say we probably uh, messed up the pronunciation a little bit there, but it seems like everybody really enjoyed the episode regardless, so uh, <laughs> uh, our apologies.
1: Well, I'll try to do Kuchulin, uh from now on, but uh, man, those, those Irish ones, are they're, they're harder than most languages.
0: They're a mouthful.
1: All right. Continuing on the subject of pronunciation, we also got quite a few communications about the product pronunciation of Uranus, a.k.a. Uranus. It's,
0: a- oh, it's perfect that we're going from Cuchulun to Uranus. Right. Since that's exactly where the, the guy Bolgo
1: went. Exactly. It goes was. straight into Uranos. Apparently, that's another way to do it. So, uh, listener Niall writes in and says … Sorry, but when you went off on your pronunciation of Uranus, it reminded me of one of my favorite jokes, which you're welcome to use. I'm sure I heard it from someone somewhere. You know how jokes go. So anyway, why is the Starship Enterprise like a roll of toilet paper? Because they both circle Uranus looking for Klingons. Oh, that's horrible. That is... That's terrible. That's one of the worst jokes I've ever heard We're all
0: worse off for having heard that joke.
1: Should we cut it out? No, we got to keep it now, sadly. Okay. Albert gets in touch and says, hey, guys... On the topic of pronunciation, I had an observation. I speak Japanese, which uses a phonetic alphabet. In Japanese, uh, Uranus or Uranus is, and then he uses some Japanese characters, uh, which you would write as Uranusu, which is pronounced with all short vowels, Uh, short vowels, so I guess that'd be Uranusu.
0: Uranusu. I like
1: that. Uranusa. Yeah. I Uh, like that. That sounds good. Or Uranusa maybe i don't know i guess that would be uranus sure. maybe mm-hmm. i don't know anyway albert says this got me thinking that your two ways uranus and uranus might both be wrong well it's acceptable in english but what does the original greek sound like and then he sort of points us to the fact that from what i can tell it might be that the the greek uranus or ouranus might be pronounced something kind of like weranos hmm weranos weranos yeah, hmm. I mean I'm not going to say that for the planet. I think I'm going to say Uranus.
0: Yeah, well, how about the, what about the the mythological entity? How if the if if Uranus appeared to you and you had to to greet them by name, which pronunciation would you use? I guess R- I- again, bearing in mind that you were dealing with an entity from Greek mythology and that they are a a, a tiresome and spiteful bunch.
1: If I had to do that, I think I'd go neither of our ways. <laughs> uh, I, it would not be Uranus. It would not be Uranus. It would be Uranus. Okay. Probably safe.
0: And it does sound regal enough, I think.
1: But you're not going to get me to call the planet Uranus. I'm sorry. Still, we greatly appreciate the thoughts on pronunciation here. Oh, yes, of course. All right. What have we got next, Robert?
0: Oh, let's see. We, still, we have a plethora of things we could potentially read, but we are run, beginning to run out of time. All right, here's another bit of listener mail. This one comes to us uh, from Simon, I believe. Hi, Stuff to Blow Your Mind team. I'm an Australian researcher working in the north of Sweden. I discovered your podcast a few months ago, and in that time, I've listened to an embarrassing amount. I've been a fan of the podcast medium for a long time, but your podcast is without a doubt the finest I've listened to. Aww. That's super nice. Uh, Robert and Joe are the perfect hosts, somehow striking the ideal balance of intelligence, humor, and approachability. No mean feat. The other thing that sets your podcast apart is your diverse choice of topics, which are often surprising and always fascinating. I've been telling everyone I can to give it an invention a listen. Well, you're too kind, Simon. We appreciate it. This brings me to an idea for a potential episode. Having moved around a lot, I've noticed a peculiar side to many of the cultures I've come across. The presence of folkloric household spirits. Growing up, my Welsh mother would tell my brothers and I about the Bwabach, a generally benevolent spirit that tended the home while we all slept. If treated with respect and occasionally given a bowl of milk or some bread and honey, the Bwabach would continue its role as a kindly steward of the house. If disrespected or neglected, the Babich could take on a more ambivalent or mischievous role. The archetype can be found repeated in many cultures. In England and Scotland, it is known as the brownie or the hob. In Ireland, the puka. In Germany, the kobold. In Denmark, the Nisi. In Spain, the Duende. In France, the Luton. And here in Sweden, the Tomte. It's obviously a Western European bias here, likely stemming from a common ancestor spirit, such as the lares of ancient Rome, but there are certainly analogs in African and Eastern cultures. There are also a number of great examples of these creatures in literature and film, such as Puck from Midsummer Night's Dream, and the character of uh, Hinzelman from American Gods, and even the Gremlins from the 1980s could be linked to this concept. Having listened to your previous episodes on folklore, particularly Jenny Greenteeth and the -the Will-o'-the-Wisp, I believe your team could do an amazing job of dealing with the many facets of these creatures and beliefs. Why do some cultures have them and some not? Why do they what do they say about us? How did some of these pagan concepts survive Christianity and formalized religion and modernization while others were lost? Though not as immediate as other folkloric entities, werewolves, vampires, etc., there is something so enigmatic and disturbing about the idea of creatures lurking in the peripheries of our homes. Best regards from snowy Sweden and thanks again for the wonderful podcast. Well,
1: thank you, Simon. I think that's a
0: great idea for
1: an episode to explore.
0: Yeah, totally. And, you know, I, I'm immediately reminded that there there are variations of this that you see in uh, in Chinese mythology. I mean, the most obvious being like that of, uh, like a, of certainly of a, of a household spirit or god, you know, the, the, the kitchen god. Uh, but I, you do see this kind of thing echoed, I think, in a lot of different mythologies and folklores. The idea that there are there are not only the the strange uh, entities and, and spirits of the woods and the waste, but also of the immediate domicile.
1: I can absolutely see how beliefs like this are especially likely to survive the sort of devastating sweep of an organized religion that mm-hmm. conquers. Uh, so you yeah you might see like Christianity conquers Europe and it largely gets rid of organized pagan religion and yet pagan beliefs that are sort of private and concerned with with the secret parts of life remain. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Oh absolutely. And especially if there's not uh, you know something in the new religion that really scratches the same itch, you know, that's yeah. not going to it's not going to satisfy the You know, this particular, uh, you know, dark or just unstated uh, corner of uh, everyday experience.
1: In fact, I remember reading stories uh, when I visited Iceland a few years ago. We were learning about the history of Iceland in their, Mm -hmm. their like national museum in Reykjavik and one of the uh, one of the things I remember reading about there in some of their exhibits was the Christianization of Iceland. So they, I think, I don't remember which, con- they were under different like imperial powers from Northern Europe at different times under like Denmark or Norway or Sweden, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, at some point, the, the Christianization impulse came from abroad and they were like, okay, Iceland, you gotta become Christians now. So the leaders of their clans got together and they essentially negotiated a compromise. And the negotiated compromise was that they would be Christians and do Christian worship in public as long as they could still keep doing their pagan practices in private at home.
0: Interesting. Well, that's a great way for the your, your more minor household spirits to survive the change.
1: All right. So we've got another message here. This comes to us uh, in response to our episode about tunneling underground. This is from our listener, Lee. Lee writes, Greetings from Australia. I'm guessing you're going to get a lot of these because we're taught this in school. Just following up regarding your episode about tunnellers, in Cooper Petty, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but uh, C O O B E R P E D Y, South Australia, about 800 kilometers north of the state's capital, Adelaide, people live underground, but it is a fairly recent development. The community did begin as one of the largest opal mining communities in the world. However, people began living underground in dugouts because the heat in the painted desert can be extreme, over 30 degrees Celsius, and dry for six months of the year, and in winter it will usually be in the 20s. They also didn't have to pay or seek permission to extend their houses, and it's relatively cheap and quick to get materials when you are an independent miner to build a house underground. Underground in Cooper Petty, the temperature is a constant 26, uh, I guess that's also Celsius, which is quite nice and cool. However, they are not necessarily caves or underground. They also build mounds and live within them. like in the picture, uh, and these are the most common, and Lee attaches a picture. Noticeably this town is only about 400 kilometers north of Woomera, the old rocket base in the middle of nowhere. With air conditioning and modern transport, uh, and Lee says mail was delivered by Camel to Alice Springs till the 1960s. Oh, wow. uh, It is easier to build houses above ground, but these houses are a staple and a tourist attraction, particularly when teaching students about using resources for practicality. It's also interesting to hear about Neanderthals going underground. Indigenous Australians of multiple cultures would not and did not as a general rule enter deep caves where it was dark for extended periods of time whether lava tubes or limestone predominantly we only find geological history or animal remains in these environments with human artifacts found in shallow caves on uh, or near cave entrances but it would still be freaky sleeping near a deep cave system when you were unsure what was behind you in the dark The Iwamian people, for example, at and around the Undara lava tubes in northeast Queensland refused to enter the caves or drink water from them. They believed that the caves would curse them and if they didn't die in there, Kordaicha, which is a boogeyman, think birds in the village style, (laughs) whoa, uh, would come and get them. Scientifically, the caves actually fill with dangerous levels of gas, can't remember which one, and this creates an unhealthy environment. The Cutta limestone caves in Catherine Northern Territory, whilst seen and experienced by the Jowin and mentioned in their dreaming, was not widely used as climbing in and out of a dark cave where you can't actually see something would be very annoying and not useful for everyday life. Kind regards, Lee. Oh, excellent!
0: I l- love hearing about that. Yeah, I remember the this particular uh, uh, Australian town came up in some of our, our research, but uh, we ended up not really, uh, uh, you know, pulling on that thread. Uh, so it's uh, so it was great to hear it broken down a little bit by uh, a native Australian. All right, uh, here's uh, we're getting down to the end here, but here are just a few more. Uh, this one comes to us from Adam. Hey, guys, I'm listening to the episode on the white-spotted pufferfish, and you mentioned that other animals, like bowerbirds, have elaborate behaviors or physical characteristics purely for fitness demonstration to attract mates. However, there is an emerging hypothesis that these actually evolve because of female aesthetic preferences with no relationship or even a negative relationship with fitness. This was originally proposed by Charles Darwin, but fell out of favor until recently. It is not the consensus idea for selection of these characteristics, but it is gaining an acceptance. There's also a link to a full-text article on PubMed Central below. Uh, This topic could be worth a mention during listener mail or as an episode. Keep up the great work. Adam, P.S., all hail the great basilisk, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) And then he included a a link for us to check out.
1: Well, that's a good point, Adam. I, I don't remember us saying that we knew it was purely for fitness demonstration as opposed to, so fitness demonstration, I guess, would be either way you are trying to appeal to mates by showing off a particular characteristic. And I guess the debate would be, is the characteristic in, in biology what's known as like an honest signal? Does it like actually signal fitness in the way that it might be perceived to versus is it just purely a decoration? Is it something that serves no actual purpose, doesn't actually show whether or not you're fit in some other way, like free of parasites or healthy or something like that? And whatever we actually said in the episode, I yeah, I think Adam's right. We, we don't always know the difference there. Sometimes there might be uh, – Might be ways in which a signal is useful in ways we don't realize or or useless in ways we don't realize.
0: All right, Joe, I think we only have time for one more here because Carney has has gone full-on Highlander 3 and is now in Mario Van Peebles mode. So, <laughs> oh, whoa. So you've got to you, you, you got you to gotta pick one, and uh, and then we're going to have to call it.
1: Well, it looks like this is from our listener Aaron regarding the Jumping Fish episode that we re-aired recently as a, as a Vault episode on Saturday. Aaron says, Howdy, been listening to the podcast for a month and a half now. I was listening to one from the Vault just now, and you discuss whether or not the Kendiru has swum up a person's urethra. Remember in the jumping (laughs) fish episode, that's where we talked about this urban legend or possible urban legend that this Amazonian fish called the kandiru can get into men's urethras by swimming up the stream of a man's urine as he pees into the river. We said that, uh, you know, it might actually be able to get get in there. We don't know, but it's definitely not going to be swimming up a a stream of urine through the air. Continuing with Aaron's email – Aaron says, Jeremy Wade actually interviews a victim and doctor that removed the fish in one episode of River Monsters. I think that's a show about scary fish.
0: It is, yes. I've seen it before. It's pretty good.
1: Uh, there was actual video of them removing the fish. Regardless of whether or not the mode of the fish inserting itself happened, it appears as though it did happen. Indeed, it is rare, but it can happen if you're to believe the story. If you watch season one episode fi- uh, episode fish, episode six, <laughs> you will see that the Kandiru is quite a scary little fish. Well, OK, I still don't believe they can swim up through the air through a stream of urine. But, I, you know, if there's a Kandiru around and you've got a urethra, I'd say don't put it in there. Don't let it get in there.
0: Always good advice. All right. Well, uh, it looks like uh, Carney has finally calmed down. It looks like his, uh, his, his infection has run its course. He has reached uh, the quickening state. And is now one again so we're gonna and, go and close out this episode we thank everybody who wrote in uh, whether we got to read your email or not uh, we do try and screen everything ourselves there is there is no other member of the uh, the email team you're you're listening to them right now uh, so even if we didn't respond or read your email here you know we, we are reading we are listening uh, we would love to hear from all of you in the future in the meantime if you want to hear more episodes of stuff to blow your mind check out stuff to that's the mothership that's really You'll find all the episodes. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts. You'll find you'll find our store tab, and that's a fun thing to click on because you can check out uh, our various uh, bits of merchandise, such as the uh, "All hail the great Basilisk, Basilisk" t-shirt that we put out. That'll you know help uh, uh, cover all your options in case uh, uh, some sort of evil AI overlord takes over in the future. Um, but if you want to support the show in a way that doesn't cost you a dime, the best thing you can do is, first of all, make sure you have subscribed to Stuff to Blow Your Mind and, Inve- and Invention, our other show, and then give us a rate rating and a review wherever you have the power to do so, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us some stars. Give us a review. It helps us in our, our battle against the almighty algorithm.
1: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other. To suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.